You're listening to the Vision Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we're taking a closer look at the core values we're seeking to build in our community in South Louisville. So these are the three M's, missional engagement, multi-ethnicity or multi-ethnic, and then maturity. Last week, we began our series by looking at maturity from an aspect of an individual basis. What does it look like for you to mature in Christ um, apart from anyone else and just in your relationship with him? This week, we'll get into the nitty-gritty. We'll talk about communal aspect. What does it mean for us to grow into maturity as a body of believers? There's a couple of different scriptures we'll look at um, today. So if you have your Bibles, you don't have to go too far. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, to see this first aspect of what it looks like to go into uh, community together. What I want to do is I want to give us three examples, starting in Genesis chapter 4, of what it looks for us not to go together, or to grow into maturity into uh, Christian community. And then we're going to look at one aspect of Jesus that will help us to give us a good indicator of what this does entail. So Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, it reads this way. It says, The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn, uh, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian or keeper? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from me from the ground. Now, so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. The question I want to look at today is what keeps us from knowing our brother? I think the first thing that keeps us from knowing our brother and sister in Christ is is found in this example here in Genesis chapter 4 this aspect of hatred and jealousy. And you can simply summarize this with these words, that what keeps me from knowing my brother is that I don't love him, that I simply do not love him. Now, notice the main issue here. The main issue is that jealousy is, is to have ill intent, misfortune, and hatred, and or unrepentant sin, sin towards in my heart towards my brother. And if not checked, it will lead to murder in my heart and mind, to, I mean my, in my heart and mind towards him, and it will lead me to isolation if left unchecked. You see, what we learn from these scriptures and these verses is this, is that preventing my brother from exceeding beyond me is a sin. Preventing my brother from exceeding beyond me is a sin. Now notice the question. The question is simple. Verse 9, where is your brother? I love this question because this question is not one of ignorance. 
God knew what happened to Abel. This is not a question of inquiry, of, of God trying to gather information from Cain. What, what this question entails and what it implies is confession. Because what Cain should have said when God asked him, where is your brother? He needs to say, he's with you. He's dead. You see, it is our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to know where our brothers are, our brothers and sisters are at all times. We should have care and concern for our brother that extends beyond our natural inclinations and our natural tendencies. What, what, what God is not asking here is, what has your brother done? Or why has he done it? He, he's not even concerned about the, agree, that the thing that happened to Cain, because he knows about it. But the question that he asks is, where is your brother? It's a good reminder that we're not called to just tolerate one another as a church. We're not called to just put up with one another as a church. We're not called to just figure it out with one another as a church. But what God calls us to is to a neediness of one another, an accountability towards one another. God expects us not just to be concerned with yourselves, but to be also concerned with the care of those who are around you and beyond you. Philippians 2 puts it this way, 2 and 4. It says, do not be concerned about your own interests, um, but, but be, do not be so concerned about your own interests that you can't look at the interests of others. You see, the main theme here is to know my brother is to know their status before a holy and righteous God. Listen to Cain's response. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, should I really know what he's doing? And if God is, if God is asking a question, then the answer has to be an emphatic yes. You see, what does it mean to be my brother's keeper? Should I know where my brother is at all times? Should I know what he's doing um, in, in the secrecy of his life? The answer is, as we grow in gospel community, yes. As we grow in trust and as we grow in um, intimacy with, one, with God and his word and one another, yes. And, and church family, this is why community groups will be so important to the life and mission of our church. You see, our heavenly father calls us to be accountable to one another. He, he, he calls us um, to be keepers of one another. And here's a question we should ask ourselves. If I'm not my brother's keeper, then who will be? If I'm not my brother's keeper, if I can't answer, if God asks me where a, a person is in the church or how they're doing, I can't answer, then who has that responsibility? It's us. It's the community of believers. It's whom God has given us. It's the person to your left or to your right. It's the pastors of your church. It's the deacons of your church. It's the mothers of your church. We live in a community and we live in a place that encourages isolation and individualism, especially when it comes to aspects of relationship with the Lord. But listen, I'm here to tell you that God doesn't have long range, that God hasn't saved us to long ranger Christianity. You, you, you can't do this thing by yourself, because if you did, he wouldn't call you to a body. And if he wouldn't call you to a body, he not only called you to a body, but he called you to a body with many parts. There are hands, there are feet, there are toes on a body. And all of them don't look the same. And all of them don't function the same, but they're all needed for the proper function of the body. This is what Christ has called us to. 
to love one another in this way. I love what Romans 12 says about this, because I believe if Romans 12 speaks candidly to this aspect of not loving your brother. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. I'll just read it for our hearing, then we'll move on. Romans 12, verse 9 starts off this way. It says this. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Uh, Give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is what our God has called us to in, relation, in, in, relationship, in relation to our communal interactions with one another. So what keeps me from knowing my brother? Not just that I don't love him. But here's another one found in Luke chapter 10. I don't live for him. I don't live for my brother. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. This is probably a very familiar passage for many of you. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 34. I believe it will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible or if you're having a hard time finding where this passage is. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Listen to the words the word of God written here and starting at verse 25. Again, Luke 10, 25 through 37 says this. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his way, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. 
When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37, the one who showed mercy to him, him, he said, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So what prevents me from loving my brother? What prevents me from from, from truly loving him. It's not just that I don't love him. It's not just hatred and jealousy. The other thing that keeps us from loving our brother or knowing our brother is lack of compassion and or concern. It's a lack of compassion and or concern. Notice the issue here. The, the issue here, and the, the question asked, the question that this, this expert of the law is asking is this, to what extent must I live for somebody other than myself? In other words, Jesus, how far do I have to go? Where does the buck stop? Well, at what point does this person, that, who I'm, who I, who, who, who's my neighbor, um, at what point can I build up a wall in order to say that they have not earned my neighborly love? The main question here that he asks is this, who is my neighbor? The theme here is this, to know my brother is to have mercy and compassion towards him. It's all about the ministry of inconvenience. It's the ministry of inconvenience of uh, who is and who isn't worthy of my time. Some of the, one of the things I love about the Gospels in particular, as we continue to go to the Gospel of Matthew or any Gospel you read, notice how Jesus often is interrupted while he is on the way to do something else. He's going to, to, to a party or he's going to heal someone and he feels a little tug from a woman who's been hemorrhaging and bleeding for 12 years and couldn't find a solution. This is what we call the ministry of inconvenience. It's when you're on your way to do something else. You are doing things for God, but yet God somehow allows certain people to cause a, a, a detour or, a, or inconvenience to you while you're trying to do things for God. And every single time in the Gospels, you see Jesus um, respond in the same way. He takes time to stop and to acknowledge and even to heal and speak to those who are, quote unquote, an inconvenience to him. In this passage, we have two examples, but yet we have one model. Notice the first, the first example. It says the priest. The priest saw him from afar and decided to pass on the other side. This is what I call premeditated avoidance. I avoid a situation, not because, I fully un- not because I don't fully understand the problem, but I see it far enough ahead of time. I-, I see the problem coming towards me, and therefore I avoid it because I don't want to be burdened with someone else's problem. We've all been here. We've all seen it. We've all done it. I do it every day. As I, my kid's knocking on the door, asking me for Cheerios. I'm like, Daddy's not here. He's moved out. Come back in about five hours. I'll get with you. Premeditated avoidance. I avoid a situation because I fully understand the problem. It's not that I'm ignorant about this thing. It's not that I don't understand. I know what's coming. I know what you're going to ask me. And as I see you walking down this hallway, I, I hear somebody call my name and I walk this way. Premeditated avoidance. We also see the Levite. The Levite arrived at the place, he saw him, and then he decided to pass by on the other side. This is purposeful avoidance. I see, I know the problem, yet I avoid it. But notice the Samaritan. 
Notice, notice that these, the priest and the Levi are, are, are two examples, but notice the model. The, the Samaritan on his journey, he took the time to be, to be inconvenienced with something that did not involve him. That something that did not involve him, he took the time to intersect and to come into a situation that didn't even involve him. He came up to him, which reminds us of the closeness and intimacy needed in our compassion and care. And when he saw him, when he saw the man, listen to what the Bible says, he had compassion on him. He had compassion. Compassion is a deep care or concern for him that led him to action. You see, he went over to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them, he put, them on, he put him on his own animal, and he brought him to the inn in order to take care of him. This is what I call provision as one's own, as one's own possession. You see, I see and I respond to the needs of my brother, regardless of what it might cost me personally. This is what God has called us to. He's called us to not build up walls or barriers and say, listen, I can only love you so much. You can only ask so much of me. You can ask me this, but don't ask me that. The Samaritan had compassion on him. And I think it's a good reminder for us that compassion should always precede charity. Compassion always should always precede charity. We're not giving to people in order just to make our own, to make, to make ourselves look good or to, or to, or to, make, to make them um, get out of a certain situation. We give out of a sense of compassion. Jesus in um, the Gospels of Matthew, he was um, on the mountain about to teach and he looked at the people and it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus on the cross being crucified um, unjustly and un unworthily looked at those who were mocking him and spitting at him and says, Father, forgive them for they do not, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus had compassion upon them that led to charity. May we be a church. May we be a gathered people who allow our compassion to lead us to charity. Do not serve in this church. Do not, do not do anything in this church I pray we don't do anything in this church without first having compassion for those we're seeking to help or to serve. We want to be a people who have been motivated and are being motivated by compassion. You see, the solution here that Jesus brings us is that, and to answer the question, who is my neighbor? He says this, my neighbor is the one whom I have compassion towards and the one to whom I joyfully show mercy towards, uh, especially when they cannot show it in return. My neighbor is the one whom I have compassion towards, and the one whom I joyfully show mercy towards, especially when they cannot show it in return. Now, what does this word mercy mean? Mercy simply means this, not to give someone what they truly deserve. It's not to give someone what they deserve. That's mercy. It's, love is not just about you giving to people. It's also about a withholding. It's also about a withholding. Jesus uses the story of the Good Samaritan to reveal this lawyer or this expert of the law's defective heart. You see, the lawyer, he claimed to love God and others. But rather than embracing the gospel of Jesus, he was desiring, as verse 29 tells us, to justify himself. 
In other words, he was making excuses of who should be his neighbor and who should not be his neighbor by saying they can't be my neighbor because they don't speak my same language as I do. They, they can't be my neighbor since they don't come to church and they don't worship God. They, they can't be my neighbor for whatever reason you want to put behind that. You see, the lawyer's justified heart treated this wounded man as a topic for discussion, as a topic for, as something to possibly consider helping. It, it, it is a stark contrast to the compassion-filled shepherd that we serve whose name is Jesus. It makes excuses. This justified ha- heart would say, it, well, it's that man's fault. You know, if he would have only been not traveling at night, if he would have been uh, having a group of friends around him, then that might not have happened to him. If he would have been living in the right neighborhood, if, if only those people would stop shooting or, or doing violence in that neighborhood, then, then that would be the answer. That, that would be the cause. A justified heart always says, if only, if only, if only you would get yourself right. If only you would think the right thoughts, only if you would be in the right situation. Justified hearts are not pleasing to our God. Hearts of compassion, hearts of mercy, hearts of forgiveness is what God calls us towards. And listen, I'm not, I'm not, I hope you don't feel condemned when I say that because we all struggle with it. Even myself, as I said before you right now. But my prayer is, is that God would inculcate, he would soften our hearts. He would do a work within us as a church body that would cause us not to have justified hearts, but to have hearts that are softened by the gospel and filled with compassion for work in South Louisville and beyond. You see, the wounded man was viewed by the robbers as just an object to to be exploited. By the priest, he was a problem to avoid. From the Levite, he saw him as an object of curiosity. He's interesting, but not interesting enough for me to be involved in that situation. But for the Samaritan, he saw him as a person to love, as a person to embrace. Here's the main point that I, one of the main points I want to share with us this morning, this morning. If I only give to those who can give back to me, then my giving is in vain and it's useless. Joshua Becker in his book, The More of Less, says it this way. He says, choosing to invest only in relationships that, ven- that benefit us is in love. It's selfishness. It's selfishness. Choosing to invest only in relationships that benefit us, that benefits us isn't love. It's selfishness. Jesus said it this way <laughs> in Matthew uh, chapter 5. He says, if you love those who love you, what, were, what were, type of reward will you have? Don't the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't either, even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I love what Jesus says here at the very end in verse 37 um, of Luke 10. He says to this man, go and do likewise, or go and do the same. And Jesus' command to go and do likewise, um, is, um, that is, to show mercy to others, is, is not an uh, entrance, entrance requirement for eternal life. 
Rather, it's a call to follow Jesus' way of loving God and others from the heart. It is simply a life mindful of the way we have been loved instead of living out of self-justification. So there's three principles I want to leave with you um, about loving your neighbor. Number one, love is not equivalent to justifying oneself. Love is not equivalent to wanting to justify yourself. Number two, our neighbor is anyone. It includes all people from any race, any culture, any creed, any ethnicity, any socioeconomic background who's in need. This is our neighbor. The last thing is this. Love means acting to recognize and to actively meet another person's need. Love means to act to actively recognize and to actively meet another person's needs. Wherever you live, I don't care if you live in the South Louisville or if you live up near uh, St. Matthews or out in Shelbyville, wherever you live, there are needy people close by, and there is no good reason for us to refuse to help them. There's no good reason. The last thing. Um, I want to look at with you is Galatians. It's found in Galatians 2. Galatians 2. So what keeps me from knowing my brother? I don't love him. I don't live for him. And then the next one is quite simple. I don't like him. I don't like him. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. It reads this way. It says this, But when Cephas, Cephas is another word for Peter, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? See, the main issue here is, is, is quite complex, but I'll try to give a quick summary of it. Peter is being fake. <laughs> Peter is accepting his Gentile friends while in front of the other Gentiles, but he, he, just, he disregards their friendships before, for Jews who come from his own commonwealth. And he does this, verse 12 tells us, out of fear. You see, Peter's partiality and his favoritism led to hypocrisy even among others, looking at verse 13. It says, when the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Here's the question that we have to ask ourselves in this aspect of, I do not like him. Are your preferences leading to prejudice? Are your preferences leading to prejudice? The, the main thing here is this, to know my brother is to know my own faults and failures. To know my brother is to know my own faults and failures, my own stumbling blocks. The areas that I have trouble in reconciling even in my own heart in regards to other brothers and sisters. You see, Peter's racist ways were not fundamentally a failure to follow a particular rule, but a failure to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. 
He says that in verse 14. He says, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. <laughs> Get this question a lot. Hear this a lot. Is um, racism, is um, sexism, is any ism related to the gospel? Xenophobia, whatever you want to call it, is this related to the gospel? Well, for Paul, it was. You see, for Paul, the gospel is not only something for Christians to pass on to non-Christians, it is also the daily bread for Christians themselves to feed on. You see, Peter evidently had forgotten that he had already been justified by grace, and he was seeking to be justified by human approval. The very thing Paul had determined not to do in verse one, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says these words. He says, for I am not trying to persuade people or God. He says, for, I am now, for am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, unchecked sins in my life leads, bleeds into the lives of others. Unchecked sins in my own life bleeds into the lives of other people. It's a good time to ponder about that and to consider some of these questions. What sins are you allowing in your life and in the life of others that cause unnecessary discord and division in your life and in the lives of others? What sins are you allowing in your life and in the lives of others that cause unnecessary discord and division in your life and the lives of others? It's a good question to consider. Very good question to consider. It's very sad that we live in a day and age where I know specifically this has been felt specifically within the Southern Baptist Convention with the issue of child molestation and, and, and child abuse specifically in the church. But you know one thing that's been interesting as they found a study and they've been studying this within the churches, specifically with the SBC, is that the, the reason that this has been permitted, child abuse within churches, is because it, the person who is doing the offense is usually affirmed by someone else who's also doing it within the church. It's not just the person who's doing it, but it's also other people who find out that that's happening and then they also join in. Some of the saddest some of the saddest stories you hear are from the records from even this past year's convention of people coming and confessing to their pastor about things that their youth pastor have done to them and to find out that their pastor ended up doing the same thing that the youth pastor had did to them. Again, unchecked sins. Unchecked sins in our lives bleeds into the lives of others. It's a good question to ask ourselves. In what, where in your life are you allowing unchecked sins to happen and to permeate in your life? So knowing my brother, there's three aspects that we're looking at here. What prevents me from knowing my brother is three things. I do not love him. I do not live for him. And then finally, we just looked at Galatians 2. I don't like him. But I do want to look to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we find the one who has shown us by his example of what it means to truly know my brother. I want to take us to a small passage. It won't be too long. Mark chapter 2, 
verses 13 through 17. This is a story of Jesus interacting with one of his disciples for the first time, Levi the tax collector. In Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13, 13 through 17, these words are found. It says this, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, uh, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was still reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice with me what Jesus does. What does it mean for me to know my brother? I love Jesus' example in here. It's very subtle, but it's very profound in the same breath. In order to know my brother, I need to learn his context and also his community. You see, the main issue here was Jesus not only calls Levi to himself, but he takes the time to enter into Levi's world. Here's the question that we, that we, that we want to know, um, that, that they ask. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or in other words, what benefit should Jesus get from befriending tax collectors and sinners? This is a good reminder for all of us that God's pursuit of his people is not based on our own personal merit. It is based on our need and is exclusively grace-driven. And if mercy is what God withholds from us, if mercy is what God does not, um, does not give us, then grace is just the opposite. Grace is God giving you what you truly don't deserve. And in this life and in this broken world that we live in, we need both aspects from God. We need a God who is gracious to us, who gives us what we don't deserve, but we also need a God who's merciful, who doesn't give us what we do deserve. Amen? Jesus' entire mission proceeds on this foundation. It assumes that human beings are not capable of restoring their broken relationships with God, including, including the destructive personal and communal consequences of sinfully striving to live independently from God. I love what Ephesians 2 says about this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this verse because it's chopped full of grace and grace and grace. God is the one who has given us this gift. He says that for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You couldn't buy this. You couldn't earn this. You couldn't accomplish this. You couldn't study enough in seminary to receive this. It is the gift of God, not resulting in works. You don't have to justify yourself before God. Just look to the one whom he's justified on on your behalf, Jesus. Look to Jesus. Notice this little caveat at the end. But you are his workmanship. You are his poem. You are his 
special masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, check this out, which God has prepared beforehand. I love that. I hope you love it too, because that gives me hope that even though my, I'm messed up and even though I'm falling, and even though I struggle, God has prepared good works for me and he's prepared good works for you beforehand. He doesn't prepare good works for you because you do good works. He prepares good works for you because he's given you the gift of his son and through his son, good works will ensue. I don't know about you, but I need a God who knows me and loves me, but also prepares a way for me that he gives me beforehand good works to do. I thank God for that. He's prepared these good works knowing my mess-ups, knowing my failures, knowing my insecurities, knowing my, my fears and, and my lack of confidence, but yet there are still good works to pursue because of Jesus. Amen? That means it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your, your likes or your dislikes. It doesn't depend on you getting it right, but it does depend on you um, depending on a sovereign Savior, submitting to Him, learning from Him, growing in Him, being conformed in, in His image, and being in the community, community that God has put you in for all that to happen. Here's the main question that's asked in this test, text. Again, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's the implied question. We're not eating with sinners, so why is Jesus? <laughs> Love that. Jesus gladly associated with sinners because he loved them and because he knew that they needed to hear what he had to say. Jesus spent time with whoever needed or wanted to hear his message, rich or poor, good or bad. And similarly, in the same way, we too must befriend those who need Jesus. And God, every, every, for, for us as a church, that includes everybody. Even if they don't seem to be ideal companions, they may be the very ones who need to see and to hear the message of Christ's love embodied in you and from you the most. It's a good time for us to reflect as a church. Is there anyone in your life whom you've been purposefully neglecting? Are there people you have been neglecting because of their reputation? Are there people you're neglecting because of, it just seems like this insurmountability, it seems like they just can't be saved? And here's the main thing, here's the things that we want to take away. To know my brother is to know his context. To know my brother is to know his community. To know my brother is to follow him where he already is, but yet to lead him where he needs to go. See, Jesus willingly enters into Levi's context and into his community in order to know his brother Levi as well as his neighbors. And this is the reality that Jesus always banks on. Changed hearts always results in changed lives. We're called to walk in the changed life that Christ has provided for us through his death, his burial, and resurrection knowing that every person who is reconciled to God through Christ is and, for, and forever be a recipient of undeserved grace. That's good news, y'all. That's good news. You see, the cross of Jesus is the unlikely intersection between God's justice and his mercy. His justice calls for an atonement to be made for sin. 
but his grace provides himself as the very atonement, the very sacrifice for that sin. You see, his mercy is, is him withholding his righteous judgment upon us, but his grace is, is not giving a substandard of what justice demands. Justice gave what truth demands in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. It says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we do praise you and thank you. We thank you, God, that you have given us every means and every opportunity, every context to truly know our brother. Father, forgive us when we have hatred and jealousy in our heart towards our brother. God, allow us to have compassion and care towards our brothers, God. Help us, Lord, not to be fake or to be, show partiality towards our brothers, but Lord, help us to love in whole as you've loved us. We do love you and thank you, God, and thank you for your word. Father, we ask right now that you would continue to mend the hearts of your people to you and to one another through the spirit of Christ. May his name be glorified in all we do, say, and think. Continue to allow us to be the church that, we, that you, you died for us to be and that the church that we're becoming. We're not fighting for victory, Father. We're fighting from victory. Their victory is found in an empty tomb and a a bloody cross. That's our victory. Help us to live out that victory as being one church united in the multifaceted nature of your kingdom. God, gather your people, grow your people, encourage your people as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.